Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Women entrepreneurs in Connecticut are increasing, and we talk to two women about their unique products and the challenges they face getting them to market. Plus, Connecticut launches a statewide electric vehicle charging station program. We have the details. And we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. They say small businesses are the backbone of America's economy. And in Connecticut, we have over 320,000 small businesses. And of those, just over 112,000 are women-owned. And whatever your gender, owning and running a business is a big deal and comes with many challenges, even when COVID isn't closing down the entire world. I caught up with two women entrepreneurs recently to hear their stories about how they started out, what they have created and how they've managed to pull it all off. So joining me on Connecticut East is Michelle Whitus and Valerie Guglielmo. Michelle has invented something called Toasty Sheets with T-O-E in the title. She'll be explaining more to us about that in a moment. And Valerie invented a thing called the Schnozzle Pro. To you both, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having us here. Hello and thank you. Michelle, I'm going to turn to you first. Toasty Sheets, what's that all about? So it's a new product that I had come up with. And essentially what I've done is change that tedious flat sheet into a hybrid sheet to make bed making easier for everyone. That sounds like an absolute godsend because I think we all fight with the, with the bedding, don't we, when we're trying to get that together. And Val, yours is also another great little invention. Explain to us what that is. <laughs> This Nozzle Pro is a nozzle adapter for hair dryer attachments, and it's made of silicone, and uh, it's something that I invented two years ago. It's been on the market now for two years. Now, both of you, of course, your businesses sort of have started in and around like the COVID years. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more in, in a bit. But as women entrepreneurs, what does it feel like when somebody, you know, you can turn around to somebody and say, hey, I invented that? Actually, it's not something that I bring up very often. But if, if it does come up in conversation, people do find it interesting because speaking for myself, I haven't met somebody that invented something or had it patented before. So they're usually very curious about that. And Michelle, what about you? Because, you know, sheets are something which we all use. We all go to bed. We all use them. But you've sort of reinvented them in a way. Right. So, you know, this idea just came to me. But as far as an entrepreneur, it feels natural to me because I have been in owning my own other business as a freelancer my whole life. So this was not a very big leap into something, but an unknown leap into something that I'm not familiar with. You know, the whole inventing and starting a physical product where I was always in the, you know, doing a service. So that was a big step for me. 
And what about the fact that, you know, both women owned businesses? I mean, I was looking at the figures. We've got over 300,000 small businesses here in Connecticut and women-owned businesses. There's over 100,000 women-owned businesses, which is, you know, about a third, which isn't bad, but it could still be better, couldn't it? What do you think, Val? Actually, I'm surprised to hear that there are 100,000. I would have thought it was a little bit less. But um, I'm excited that I did not set out to start a company. I had an idea, and uh, I was hoping to license this product to a much larger company. So when that did not pan out this time, I just was encouraged by a friend of mine to uh, maybe I should invent this product and manufacture it on my own. And that friend happens to be Michelle. Yeah, I was going to say, we were going to get into that. We should tell the listeners that both of you are very good friends. And in fact, you've inspired each other, you were saying before we started recording this interview, which is really nice because we don't hear enough about women entrepreneurs and women businesses, despite the fact that we've just quoted those figures. And Val, you said you were surprised at that figure. It's nice to have somebody that you know who's got your back. Oh, for sure. There's always going to be something that comes up or highs and lows. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy when you don't know how to do something and navigate from even just registering your business. For me, it was finding a manufacturer, which took two years. So when you're, you know, you're going to give up and then your friend says, no, don't give up and then vice versa. And you really help each other out. And it encourages you when you see your friends succeeding, you're so happy for them. And then you think, okay, I can do this too. And, and it keeps you going. So it's, it's been a real comfort to, to go back and forth when I know when Val's ahead of me on something, I can ask her for something like right now about Amazon and getting the product on there, and vice versa. So it's it's great to have somebody to um, lean on. The other thing as well, when we mentioned a few moments ago, obviously both of your businesses, these new businesses, started obviously during COVID times. I'm guessing that was a challenge in itself as well, because of course we're even now hearing about supply chain issues and whatever. I mean, Val, did that cause you some problems, apart from the fact that it was also a new business anyway? Well, Like all of us, none of us knew that COVID was coming. And Michelle and I had both started working on our ideas and our products before COVID came along. So fortunately, I had already had my product manufactured, and it was being shipped to me here in the States. And there there was a lot of concern whether it would arrive on time. And my first shipment came in just fine, but thereafter... You know, I had delays. There were moments, weeks, that I was completely out of stock and unable to sell. And sadly, that still continues to be a problem, even more so these days than it was last year. And did either of you find a lot of a help and assistance, you know, from the state? You know, not looking to knock the state. It's got a lot of things that it has to deal with, but it's got a lot of agencies and they are out there to help businesses. I mean, Michelle, as you said, this isn't your first business, but it's a different type of business. So I'm guessing it has very different challenges. Did you find help out there? I did. So I have found a lot of help out of the state. They've been really helpful. It's a small business bureau. uh, I forget the name of it, but they've helped me ever since the beginning to help me register the business into the state. Anytime I have any questions on paperwork or connecting me to the right people to help along the way. And then, in fact, once I had the product, moved me into their marketing department to help me to strategize with that. Through that, I constantly get 
invited to certain things. I was invited and selected through um, UConn Law School, so they actually registered and helped me trademark the name for free by being selected into that. And then just recently, uh, two months ago, I was offered to pitch my business at Hartford Women's Business, and there um, I ended up winning some money. So there's a lot of opportunities with the right people, but they've always helped me out in helping like wade through the waters of things that I don't know. Val, what about you? Because I'm guessing to a certain degree you must have gone down some similar paths that Michelle went down or not? Actually, for me... Uh, maybe perhaps I worked more in a vacuum when it came to my approach. And I'm not sure why that is, because certainly Michelle has found a lot of resources available in the state. But I think it's because I was able to find, uh, through LinkedIn, a mentor, uh, a fellow inventor that had connections. And as a paid consultant, I worked with him and that took a lot of, gave me a lot more shortcuts, if you will. Not that there are any shortcuts, but he certainly provided me with connections. And I did not need to reach out uh, to the state, but it's interesting to know that there are resources there. The other thing as well is that, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, but Connecticut does in fact manufacture a lot of things. And we're not just talking the big things like the submarines and the helicopters that we're always hearing about. I mean, there's lots of other smaller companies that, uh, you know, manufacture parts which are used to whatever. So my question to both of you is, were you able to find, you know, local companies to help you make these? Or did you have to go outside, Michelle? No, no. a lot of this stuff, especially in textiles, a lot of the large, wider um, mills and things were shipped overseas. And most, not, not that we don't grow cotton and things here, but a lot of it, the industry is either in China, India, or Portugal, and trying to bring it back here, I did look um, for a long time here, and not even the cost-wise didn't bother me, because I really wanted to be made in America. It just made it too hard in the beginning. Um, So currently, I am looking and talking with somebody to hopefully bring it back here, but as of right now, it's just easier to, to make it in India. And Van, what about you? I mean, sort of, it's a silicon-based product. One would think that we've got that technology here in Connecticut, but was that the case? Uh, No, not at all. Surprisingly, there are only a handful, and I do mean like five, silicone manufacturers in the United States. And when I began, I absolutely, like Michelle, you know, how great would it be to be able to manufacture in the U.S.? But it was too cost-prohibitive. And uh, their requirements were very steep for somebody working out of their own pockets, which we both were. We're, we're both self-funded. I'm sorry to interrupt, John. When you mean steep, you're talking about how much they wanted to, to make and you would have to pay for up front, not even knowing if you can sell this stuff. The cost to build, in my case, a silicone mold you know, it was extremely high in comparison to where I ended up, which, which was China. Also, the silicone manufacturers in the U.S., they have high uh, minimum order requirements, and they wanted future guarantees beyond that. My first order of Snozzle Pro was 3000 and that scared me to death. I didn't know if I would even sell one. So that was a big commitment. It was a scary financial commitment, and 
by default, I had no choice if I wanted to manufacture to go to China. There are rubber manufacturers and plastic manufacturers in Connecticut, and I did look into whether or not my product could be made from those materials instead, uh, but it did not it did not function the way that I needed it to. I was going to say, because even though people can't see it, it, it looks like a, a, a collar, which is universal, which allows you to put effectively any adapter onto any type of hairdryer, grips it well. But the good thing is, because it's made of silicon, you don't burn yourself. Exactly. I was able to do a lot of my testing, certainly in Connecticut. There are a huge number of hairdryers on the market. Um, and I went to Ulta Beauty they had at least 45 hair dryers on the floor. And so I spent a lot of time in that aisle taking measurements and getting information. There also was in Deep River, Connecticut, is Interpro. They did my initial 3D printed prototype. So that was phenomenal to have such a close resource to me. So, but it, it would have been, it would be wonderful to be able to manufacture or do more business here in the, in the state. Well, you've both done incredibly well. I mean, and you're both still going. Uh, These products look great. They're clearly selling. Quick question to both of you. As you look back over the process now, you know, a couple of years in, anything you think you would have maybe have done differently, Michelle? What would I have done differently? You learn as you go. So it probably wouldn't have been different because I didn't know. Knowing now and, you know, if I had to help somebody, then I would be able to. It just, the time that it took from the beginning to get it going. And then even like we were saying with COVID, all the factories were shut down. So that, you know, delayed everything eight months. Even now getting market awareness um, has been a challenge. You know, I've, I've gone to shows and farmers markets and everyone takes so well to it, but how do you get your name out there and how do you let everyone know? And that's been the challenge right now and trying different things this last year. So it's still constantly a challenge till it really takes off and, and people know the name. And Val, like you said, this is the first time that you started a business to other women out there who may be thinking of doing the same. I know it's the $64 million question. Any sort of tips that you would give to them other than obviously stick with it? Just take a chance. If, I, if, if Michelle and I weren't taking our daily walks at our full-time job, both of us still work full-time. Uh, this is our side business. You don't regret the things you don't do. You regret the things you, that you didn't do. Isn't that how it goes? I'm not sure, All but right, I do gonna... agree with that. I, well, neither one of us <laughs> can like have what? neither one of us could have any regrets that we actually yes. went for it. I know absolutely that I would have deep regret if I never went for it. And there was a point in time I was speaking with my parents. I'm about to, you know, make this financial arrangement with my manufacturer in China, and I was scared. This is more money putting out there. What do you think? Do you think I should do this? Uh, My parents both owned a small business here in Connecticut for many, many years. And fortunately for me, they encouraged me. And getting encouragement from our friends and family certainly is a help. But it's definitely worth pursuing. You never know unless you try. Well, it's been great talking to you both. And obviously, you are inspirational women. Congratulations on the success that you have. And of course, without people like you, none of us will have these things. And of course, you don't realize you need it until it's actually out there and two very good products. Thank you ever so much for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thanks, Brian. 
And if you're interested in Michelle's toasty sheets, you can find out more details about them and order them online at her website. That's toastysheets.com, T-O-E-S-T-Y-S-H-E-E-T-S.com. And for Valerie's hairdryer adapter, details and how to order are at her website, snozzlepro.com. That's S-N-O-Z-Z-L-E-P-R-O.com. The push for greener and cleaner energy is all around us, from solar and wind to even the cars that we drive. And just recently, Connecticut's Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, or Pura, launched a statewide electric vehicle charging program to try and get more people and businesses to consider going electric. So what does it mean and why should we consider it? I spoke with Pura's chairman, Marissa Gillette, to find out more and also took the opportunity to ask her about how she felt Eversource was doing after Pura's report last year in the wake of Hurricane Issa Eas. Marissa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So explain to us this new rollout of the electric vehicle charging program, if you would. Absolutely. So as part of Pura's equitable modern grid proceeding, one of the tracks was targeted at ensuring that we are preparing the grid to be able to integrate electric vehicles. This specific program is targeted at light-duty electric vehicles. So those are things like passenger vehicles or some of the fleets for you know, m- municipal governments or uh, small businesses. And the program itself is designed to provide incentives that offset the cost, uh, the upfront cost of purchasing what is called a smart charger. And those chargers, they're called level two or above, they can provide pricing signals to the customer as to when it's the most economic to charge, both for the customer and for the grid. So the program provides up to $500 for a new smart charger for a residential customer. And the customer can also get $500 to offset the cost of their any wiring upgrades needed. And in addition to that, customers can enroll in what's called managed charging and get incentives of up to $200 per year. And through that program, that's the, those are the price signals I was talking about a moment ago. Basically, you're trying to get the customer to charge overnight when other uh, when the grid is not being used to the same degree that it's used during the day. So it's cheaper for everyone. There are also incentives available for municipal fleets or small businesses, folks who want to install charger on public property. So the program targets all of those things as well as multi-family dwellings. And after this, so this program launched January 1st of this year, Pira has already going announced that we are going to start exploring a comparable program for medium and heavy duty fleets, as well as for some micro transit options like e-bikes and e-scooters. And is this all a push uh, because obviously we need to basically not just Connecticut, but everyone just needs to clean up their act and sort of like use energy more efficiently? Yes, Pura itself is not a policymaking entity, but we do look around the policy signals that the state or the federal government is sending. And in this case, Connecticut has signed on to an MOU with a bunch of other states on the eastern seaboard. And it commits the state to trying to deploy 150,000 electric vehicles by 2025. And there is an even higher target for 2030. So at Pura, where we're charged with making sure that the electric grid can deliver electricity reliably, we need to make sure that those electric vehicles can integrate into the grid without causing unnecessary upgrades. So this is our attempt to be proactive, to make sure that the grid is 
ready for what we think is going to be uh, a huge upswing in the electrification of the transportation industry. And I understand that people can obviously get uh, a lot of information from the, the partners who are responsible for this, which of course are the energy companies. Just talk to us a little bit about those webinars, I believe. So as I described a couple of minutes ago, the program's targeted at a couple of different audiences. So the EDCs, the electric distribution companies, so those are Eversource and United Illuminating, they will be hosting webinars over the next six to eight weeks with a different target audience each time. So there will be a webinar targeted to residential customers. There will be one targeted to small businesses, to municipalities, to electrical contractors who may be actually installing these charging infrastructure. So if folks are looking for more information on how to tune into one of those webinars, we have posted it to Pira's website. The uh, utilities have that information available on, on their pages. And also we have made it available on all of our social media. So if you're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you can locate Connecticut underscore CT underscore Pura, P-U-R-A. And our, um, all of our social media has links to that, uh, to those webinars. Last year, a ruling was made by Pura, yourself and the organization with regards to shortcomings by Eversource with regards to Storm Easter ESC. It's a year on. We have had more situations, more storms, etc. How are the energy companies doing? You know, we have not had a test or storm of the magnitude of Tropical Storm Isaias since 2020 and, and more properly since the ruling came out by Pira in April of 2021. So I cannot say definitively how they are doing. I will say that both of the utilities, both Eversource and UI, have taken great lengths to incorporate the directives that Pira issued after our investigation. So We gave them a bunch of directives about increasing their communication with uh, the municipalities, um, staffing up and making certain resources available. So they have been undertaking those preparedness activities in the way that I would expect. You know, you don't want to wish for a storm to put them to the test. Certainly, that's not what I'm interested in. But I have to reserve um, full judgment until I see how they perform in, in in an emergency that's equivalent to that tropical storm. Would it be fair to say that, you know, based on what you've just said, that they are more engaged now than perhaps they were in the past and maybe lessons are starting to be learned? I hope so. I took this job in 2019 and I'm from out of state, so I was not here for the 2011-2012 storms. But my reticence is, is, you know, folks who were around for those storms felt like the lessons were learned by the utilities after those major storms. And you know, clearly, what was that, eight years later when the tropical storm Isaias hit, some of those same failings were uncovered in our investigation. So, you know, they're they're doing the right things. They're checking the boxes that Pira and our stakeholders have outlined for them. I'll say I'm cautiously optimistic that they are certainly more engaged than they were for the, the first 18 months that I was in this job. Do you think, you know, and I'm not defending anybody here, but do you think it's because we don't, you know, get these storms on that regular basis that maybe people and organizations, you know, just forget, you know, how to actually deal with storms of this nature when they when they come along because they're they're not as frequent? Do you think that could be part of the issue as well, that it isn't a deliberate act by anybody? It's just a case of these things get spaced out and people forget what is actually required when you do get a big storm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation coming from the perspective of maybe the municipalities or their 
emergency management officials because you know there's by nature a fair degree of turnover at that level. But with respect to the electric utilities, it's their business to be ready for those storms. We require them to drill several times per year, including exercises that are conducted regionally and nationally. They are required to maintain what's called an emergency response plan and do internal drills. So whether or not that they that the utilities uh, have faced a storm of that magnitude every year, I think does not does not excuse their lack of readiness, particularly on the part of Eversource during that investigation. And that's kind of um, one of the strong messages that we were sending following our investigation is that, you know, you went eight years without a storm of that magnitude, but with the increase, increasing frequency of climate change related events, I don't think that we're going to have the luxury of having eight years between kind of major storms like that. So there's an increased emphasis on preparedness activities, making sure that we have um, internal staffing resources at those utilities that can respond, especially since we're seeing storms. They may not be of the same magnitude as Tropical Storm Isaias, but we're seeing an increasing number of wind and rain events, even you know some this week. So I don't want to let them let them off the hook for for that. But we certainly recognize that it's necessary to make these things more muscle memory than anything else. Marissa Gillette, Chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, Pura. As always, thank you for your time and your insight. Thank you for having me. Tree damage caused by high winds, hurricanes, or stormy weather? Green Valley Tree has you covered. We offer emergency storm service for residential, commercial, and Navy municipalities. From full removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken and fractured limbs, no job too big or small. If you need immediate emergency service outside our regular business hours, call our emergency hotline at 860-966-5710 and visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for details of our other services. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. In the Haddam-Killingworth news, in what it called a difficult decision and one that wasn't taken lightly, the Connecticut Yankee Council of the Boy Scouts of America has decided to sell the Deer Lake Scout Reservation to a private developer. The unexpected move was made at a recent meeting of the Connecticut Yankee Council's executive board. Response was immediate with several persons seeking to protect the 255-acre property as open space characterizing it as shocking. But there's a catch, as the sale is not final. In a further statement, the council said it would consider offers superior to the one being pursued and any such offers would need to be received by March 31st. The shock decision came just weeks after Senator Blumenthal stood with the organization and other local legislators, promising to protect and preserve open spaces like Deer Lake. This decision by the Boy Scouts is deeply disappointing, Blumenthal said in a prepared statement. My office will continue working with the Trust for Public Land and the Killingworth community to work towards a resolution that preserves public access to the camp and its trails. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, July 4th and other backyard celebrations could get considerably louder and some say more dangerous under a proposed legislative bill to allow more powerful fireworks to be sold in Connecticut. Under the proposed bill, the sale and use of consumer-grade explosive devices including firecrackers, Roman candles, smoke bombs and other aerial varieties would be allowed, although sales would be limited to standalone fireworks stores. The bill was discussed recently at a public hearing of the Legislature's Public Safety and Security Committee. 
that drew testimony from fire officials who say it will produce more injury and death, and retailers who say the state's current prohibition on the devices just leads residents to cross state borders to get them, typically in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. In the day this week, an investigation into sexual misconduct of two New London school employees by the State Office of the Child Advocate has revealed historic lapses in the school district's hiring practices and failures to meet mandated reporting and Title IX requirements. The new report stems from an investigation that began back in 2019, a dark period for the school district when police arrested Karish Gaskin, a climate control specialist working with troubled youth on charges. He sexually assaulted two girls aged between 14 and 15 while working at the district's middle school. Along with Gaskin, the report focuses on details surrounding the hiring and eventual firing of a former paraprofessional and track coach at the school who was accused of having inappropriate relationships with students and allegedly had sex with a 16-year-old student. That former employee was never prosecuted. In the Middletown Press this week, February 2021, J.N. Bryan was driving with her roommate Deanna Wallace on a stretch of Interstate 84 when they crashed. Brian, who had just turned 25, was killed and Wallace was severely injured, according to legal filings. In two claims seeking a total of $200 million against the state, attorneys for the women's families want to know why it took state police hours to find the crashed vehicle after a passing motorist reported hitting a piece of debris from the wreck. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.